If you could keep your Bibles open to Esther chapter 4. There's also a sermon handout in your bulletin that will give you a skill as to where our sermon is heading this afternoon. You can just take that out. And if you are joining us via Zoom, you'll be able to see the sermon handout on the screen. The story is told of a king who was both ruthless and wicked. And one day, he decided he would go look for a wife among his subjects. And he came to a village, saw a beautiful girl, and decided that he wanted her to be his wife. And so he took her and her family to the edge of a cliff, and he told her, I'm a reasonable man. Love cannot be forced. And so I'll give you a choice. In this pouch, there are two stones, one black and one white. If you put your hand in the pouch and choose the white stone, you don't have to be my wife. I'll let you and your family go. But if you choose the black stone, you must willingly become my wife. Otherwise, your family will be thrown over the cliff. I know. I did say that this king was both ruthless and wicked. Now, the girl knew that in that pouch, the king had placed two black stones. So there's no possibility of her drawing a white stone. Now, if she accuses the king of being a fraud, if she exposes him, it is most likely that she and her family will be thrown over the cliff straight away. But if she doesn't, she'll have to be married to a ruthless and wicked man. So what should she do? What would you do? Well, thankfully, she was a quick-thinking girl. She put her hand into the pouch and took out a stone and promptly dropped it over the cliff. And then she said to the king, Oh, great king, I'm so sorry for my callousness. I dropped the stone over the cliff. But to know which was the stone that I chose, whether it was black or white, we can check the stone that's remaining in the pouch. If it is white, then the stone that I chose was black. And if it is black, then the stone that I chose must be white. Well, as you would expect, her words did the job. And without exposing and embarrassing the king, and in so doing, she saved her family and she saved herself. Well, if you've just joined us, we've just started a new sermon series on the theme of exiles last week. This series is an offshoot from our Hebrew series, which we started about one and a half years ago, where we reminded of the verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that Christians are exiles on this earth. And let me read that verse for you. Hebrews 11, verse 13. This all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Exile, as the dictionaries would usually define it, is a state of voluntary or forced absence from one's country or home. Accompanying that is often the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs. Yet for the present, one is unable to return there. 
But exile can often imply more than just simply a geographical dislocation. As one author puts it, it can include the experience of knowing one is an alien in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. And we experience this in Canada, isn't it? Where increasingly the dominant value is running counter to our Christian faith. In this series, we plan to learn from three stories in the Bible about people who were for all intents and purposes exiles where they were living. The question we want to address is this. As exiles in the land we are in, how should we then live? My hope is that these three stories can give us some handle on how we should live as exiles in our current environment. Our passage in Daniel 3 last week explained why it is necessary sometimes to defy the system, as Cedric, Meshach, and Abednego did. For brevity, we had called that Cedric's choice. This afternoon, instead of defying the system, I want to suggest that we can also live as exiles by working the system. And I call this the Esther's choice. The phrase working the system can have a negative connotation. One dictionary defines it this way. It is to understand how a system works so that you can get advantage for yourself, often in a slightly dishonest way. Well, that's not what we're advocating here. We're not suggesting using underhanded or dishonest means. Rather, our definition of working the system is more about acting wisely to understand how a system works and using whatever resources and influences available to us to meet the challenges to our faith that are being imposed by the hostile forces in society. Let me repeat that. Our definition of working the system is more about acting wisely to understand how a system works and using whatever resources and influence available to meet the challenges in our faith that are being imposed by hostile forces in society. And obviously, God plays an important part in all of this. Our story this week takes us to the land of Persia, to its capital, Susa, sometime in the year 480 BC, where King Ahasuerus, better known by his Greek name, King Xerxes I, reigned. This story takes place about 100 years after our story last week about Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our focus is on a woman named Esther. Esther was a Jew, and like many of her people, she was an exile in the capital city of Persia. She was an orphan, brought up by her cousin Mordecai. And so she suffered from a triple disadvantage in her times. She was a woman, an orphan, and an exile. We are also told that she was a very beautiful young woman. If you had the opportunity to read through the first few chapters in the book of Esther, you would have read the story of how this whole story, uh, story of Esther started because King Ahasuerus had a queen named Vashti. And for reasons not told to us, Queen Vashti refused to obey the king's command to appear before his guests at a feast and thus incurring his wrath. And she was removed from the throne. While this led to a royal edict to search for a queen to take her place. And Esther was among the women who were chosen. 
She was selected and she was put in the custody of the official who was in charge of the whole selection process. And we are told she won his favour. So when each of the women selected were brought before the king, the king chose Esther and made her queen. Well, subsequently, we read that the king promoted a man named Haman to be effectively his second in command. Haman was a proud man who was terribly upset when Mordecai chose not to bow down to pay him homage like everyone else did. There was obviously a strong anti-Semitic streak in Haman, and as a result, Haman plotted and received the king's approval to exterminate all the Jews on a given day. And our passage this afternoon in chapter 4 picks up from this point. When the royal decree was issued and all the Jews in the Persian Empire, that all the Jews would be exterminated, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloths and ashes and went to the king's gate. He moaned because the stakes were high. It was estimated that perhaps there were 15 million Jews scattered throughout the whole Persian Empire. They were now all decreed to be killed. While well, news of the edict seemed to have spread everywhere except inside the palace. Esther was not aware of it, and Mordecai had to inform her and ask her to back the king's favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. Well, Esther was understandably cautious. To speak to the king about this matter would most likely expose her identity as a Jew. Until now, the king has not known that. She's kept that from the king. Well, in any case, she could not enter the inner courts without being summoned by the king. To do so, risk being put to death under the law. And it would appear that Esther might have fallen out of favour with the king as he had not caught her for 30 days. But Mordecai was insistent. And thinking that Esther might not be willing to get involved, Mordecai reminded her that firstly, being Jewish meant that she too was caught under this decree and being in the palace would not change that. Secondly, Mordecai was confident of God's deliverance ultimately. He knew God would not allow the Jewish people to be annihilated. And if Esther did not do anything to help, God would deliver the Jews from another place. His confidence is quite remarkable given that at this time, Israel had already fallen to Syria and Judah to Babylon, and Jerusalem was still very much in shambles. And the Jews there were living under foreign rule, and many have already died as a result. But Mordecai knew well God's covenant with the Jewish people. He knew God would not let them be wiped out completely. Well, thirdly, Mordecai reminded Esther that her being in a palace was not an accident. She had been placed there for a purpose. As he puts it in verse 14 of chapter 4, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I was reflecting on Mordecai's words to Esther just this week. And in a way, I couldn't help thinking how rare that is in our church today. And what I mean is this. We are often hesitant to speak truth into each other's life, isn't it? My small group was just discussing this on Friday. And someone shared how often we are reluctant to point out when a fellow Christian may have gone wrong. Reluctant to challenge each other to do the right thing to obey God. 
because we think somehow that we will be intruding too much into each other's private space. And that would seem politically incorrect. I hope that's not the case, not the case here at Christ the King. I hope we will always be gracious, but we will also be willing to hold one another accountable for the way we live out our Christian faith. We need both truth and grace. And on this point, one of the commentators said, and I quote, we sometimes need to be extremely forthright in exhorting one another to do the right thing, just as Mordecai did with Esther. Our best friends are those who love us enough to be genuinely honest with us. When relationships are good, reprimands can be given, even welcomed and accepted in the spirit in which they are given, end quote. And I hope we can do that at Christ the King. Anyway, back to the story. Challenged by Mordecai, Esther sprung into action. And from this point forward, we see her taking control of events. Uh, she told her messengers to inform Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa to hold a fast for her and not eat or drink for three days. She did the same herself uh, with the woman with her. And then she planned to risk going to see the king and to plead with him, knowing that if the king did not hold out the golden scepter to her, she would be put to death. And here's where we see Esther's courage. She ended her message to Mordecai saying simply, if I perish, I perish. And we are told Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had instructed him. And on the third day of the fast, Esther stood in a king's inner court to be granted an audience. The king called her to approach, and having won his favour, he said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. While that's not meant to be taken literally, by the way, it is a custom of kings in those days to make these exaggerated promises. If we recall, King Herod said the same thing when he was pleased with Herodias' daughter, uh, pleased with her dance in Matthew chapter 14. But it must have encouraged Esther. And this would be a good time, isn't it, to ask for the royal decree to be rescinded. But that's not what she did. Instead, Esther replied, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Well, the king readily agreed. And Haman was summoned, and together they came to the feast that Esther prepared. And after a few drinks, he asked Esther again, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And again, Esther played coy. My wish and my request is, if I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. That's it. A second invitation to a feast. And that's all she asked of the king. And we're all left in suspense. Well, not if you have read the first seven chapters of uh, Esther, as I had requested uh, um, last week. Well, the passage Y read for us this afternoon ends at this point. And in the interest of time, we haven't read the rest of the story. I hope if you're not familiar with this story, that you'll take some time this week to read the remaining uh, part of uh, the book of Esther. It's a short read, 
but certainly an entertaining and instructive one. But let me briefly summarize what happened. Uh, well, firstly, Haman. Being invited to a dinner twice in a row with only the king and queen made Haman puffed up with pride. But he was still not happy with the fact that Mordecai was not bowing down to him. So egged on by his wife and his friends, he had gallows 75 feet high. That's pretty high. He had it built with the intent of hanging Mordecai on it. But as God's providence would have it, that night, the king could not sleep and decided to do some late night reading. And there he found out Mordecai hadn't been honored for reporting a plot to kill the king some years later. The next morning, the king decided to honor Mordecai and Haman's view was sought. And mistakenly thinking that the king wanted to honor him, Haman told the king how the honor should be bestowed, only to be later informed that it was meant for Mordecai. That must be hard uh, for Haman. And worst, Haman had to be the one doing the honoring of Mordecai. And then at Queen Esther's second feast, the king again made his lavish offer to give up half his kingdom. And it was at this point that Esther pleaded for the king to spare her life and life of her people. And she exposed Haman's treachery. The king was furious when he heard this and had Haman hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai and the Jewish people were spared. Well, that was a quick summary of the rest of the story of Esther. I hope you've now got the general lay of the land. And so might, what might some of the lessons that we can learn from this story? Let me suggest three. Well, firstly, Christians need to remember that those hostile to our faith are not as powerful as they seem. God is more powerful. Let me repeat that. Christians need to remember that those hostile to our faith are not as powerful as they seem. God is more powerful. Up till the point when a king decided to honor Mordecai, it would seem that Haman could do no wrong. He was promoted, and in fact, we are told the king set Haman's throne above all the officials who were with him. Everyone at the king's gate had to bow down and pay him homage. Haman was also immensely rich. He effectively bribed the king to send out the decree to massacre the Jews. He offered to put 10,000 talents of silver into the king's coffer. Well, just to give a perspective, Herodotus, the historian of that time, tells us that the annual income of the entire Persian Empire was 15,000 talents of silver. So 10,000 is two-thirds of that amount. Well, no doubt Haman intended for part of the money to come from plundering the Jews after they were killed. But Haman must still have been a fabulously wealthy man. And yet all it took was for God to give the king insomnia, which then led to a chain of events resulting in Haman having to honor Mordecai. And that was the turning point. As Haman's wise man and his wife, Zeresh, said in Esther chapter 6, verse 13, 
if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Wise words. You see, the wicked are not as powerful as they seem. God is more powerful. And so likewise for us today, it can feel sometimes that the forces that are lined up against the Christian faith are considerable. Well, just think of how quickly we have moved as a society on issues such as abortion, euthanasia, and marriage here in Canada. Yet if there's one thing that we can learn from the story of Esther, it is that even in the darkest moments, we can still believe that God is sovereign and He's more powerful than any of the forces that might be against us. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Secondly, Christians can respond to challenges imposed on our faith by working the system. Let me repeat that. Christians can respond to challenges imposed on our faith by working the system. When Mordecai left Esther with the words, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, you start to see a decisive shift in how Esther approached the challenge of saving her people. Until this point, she was a passive Jew whom the king had presumed to be a pagan, someone known only for her beauty and submission to men around her. But now she moved to influence the circumstances. She moved to work the system. And how did she do it? Well, first of all, she sought God's wisdom. We see that in Esther telling Mordecai to hold a three-day fast for her. And implied in that is no doubt much prayer and seeking of God's wisdom on how she should proceed. Well, secondly, she was prudent and applied the creative imagination that God had given her to work the system. This is a mindset that asks, how can I respond in a creative and effective way within the existing rules and framework to achieve what I believe is an outcome that God would approve? It's a bit like the story I told at the start of the sermon, how the girl from the village used her creative imagination, worked the system to thwart the wicked king's ploy to get her to marry him. Sometimes it seems to us that the only choices we have available are bad ones. But often that's because we have not chosen to think creatively about the solutions that are possible. And so how did Esther work the system to save her people? Well, firstly, we see her in chapter 5, verse 1, putting on her royal robes, a reminder to the king that she was his queen. Literally, the Hebrew word uh, there reads, uh, she put on her royalty. It was not just some attractive clothes, nice clothes, but royal robes that the king himself must have bestowed upon her earlier. She then made her entry to the king. And we see Esther approaching the king respectfully, following the protocol of the courts, waiting to be summoned, touching the tip of the scepter when she was finally summoned, and speaking very courteously to the king. And when she won the favour of the king, and he said to her, What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. We were thought, yes, this is the perfect moment for Esther to make her request. But she didn't. Instead, she invited him to a feast. And so you might be asking, 
Why is she wasting an opportunity like this on a dinner invitation? Worse, she followed the first invitation with a second one after the, uh, for the next day. But Esther knew what she was doing. She was beating her time. She was bidding up the emotional credit with the king. And with each elaborate feast that she hosted, um, she was at the same time puffing up Haman and making him think that he was in the inner circle, giving him the false confidence so that he didn't suspect what was coming. And of course, she wouldn't have expected God's providential help in making the king sleepless that night after the first feast, which resulted in him honoring Mordecai the next day. That made it easier to convince the king that the decree that Haman bribed the king to declare was wicked and was a total lie. Because if a Jew like Mordecai would save the king from an assassination plot, surely Haman was lying when he said that Jewish people were wicked people who were enemies of the king and deserved to be killed. And so God was helping prepare the ground for Esther even as she prepares to make her request to the king. And of course, when Esther finally makes that request, and you can turn your Bible to uh, Esther chapter 7, verse 3, note how she phrases it. And let me read for you. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Well, I have no doubt that she would have rehearsed her speech many times in front of the mirror the night before. But do you see how she's laying out her request to the king? Well, firstly, she made it clear from the beginning that she depended on the favor of the king. She wasn't trying to tell him what to do. And then you can see how she made it personal. She asked the king to spare her life let my life be granted me for my wish. I mean, how could you send me your queen uh, to my death? She then appeals to the king's own interests. She said, if we had been sold, well, in a sense, the king had sold the Jewish people. They had been bought by Haman's money. Esther is telling the king that if he had made the Jewish people slaves, it would still have been tolerable for her and the king would still have benefited from their free labor. But to condemn them to death, he would have lost them, and you gain nothing by that. She's in fact telling the king. And when the king asked, who is he, and, who is, and where is he who has dared to do this? Notice that Esther didn't reply and say something like, oh, it's that royal decree that you signed, or, you know, you did it at the request of Haman. Rather, she singled out Haman and Haman alone. A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, she said. Esther had clearly prepared well before she made her request. She was prudent, she was patient, she was meticulous, she was persuasive. And this is what it means to be working the system. It's about living with limited power. While Esther and Mordecai were holding certain positions of power, for the bulk of the story, they were not the ones in control. 
They had to make the most of the situation in a position where they had little or no control. It's like Paul and Silas being thrown into the jail in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And what did they do? They prayed and they sang hymns. It's like Joseph being thrown into prison in Genesis chapter 39. And what did he do? He does the things assigned to him so well that he ends up being given the responsibility to manage the prison. These people didn't whine, they didn't complain. They had come to terms with what it means to live as exiles. When faced with a challenging situation, they seek God and they act wisely. They understand how the system works and they use whatever resources that are available to them. And sometimes the only resource that they have is prayer. And they use that to meet the challenge imposed by hostile forces. They work the system. Lastly, working the system does not come without risk. And this is our third lesson. Christians need to be prepared to take the risk for the kingdom of God. Christians need to be prepared to take the risk for the kingdom of God. Because we know the ending of the story, we can be numbed to the fact that for Esther, each step of the way was fraught with risk. The king might not have extended his scepter to her and she would die. The king might not have been willing to go to the banquet and she would have lost an opportunity to plead with him. Haman might have found out that Esther was a Jew, exposed her perhaps, or put him on guard and prepared him to respond to her plea to the king. The king might not have seen things Esther's way. After all, 10,000 talents of silver was a lot of money, and Esther would have failed to save her people. So there are many other possible ways the trajectory of this story could have gone. When Esther uttered those words, and if I perish, I perish. We need to recognize that those were not the words of a woman who has been fatalistic about a situation, as if it was, you know, kisera, sera, what will, whatever will be, will be. These were also not the words of a woman with a resigned attitude. Well, Mordecai, well, you left me no choice, and since you brought me up, I'll do what you say, even if it means that I have to die doing it. Rather, I think these were the words of a woman with an attitude of trusting submission. She knew the lives of God's people were in serious danger, and she was prepared to take the risk. She didn't know what the outcome of her actions would be, but she was prepared to trust God, and she was willing to submit to what she believed was God's will for her to save her people. Her attitude was one of, it is dangerous, I know, but I'm going to trust and obey. Esther had no idea whether her plan would succeed or not, but while she could not see how the whole episode would unfold, she was prepared to take a risk and do her part, trusting that God would do His. And to the best of her abilities, she took the risk. And this is so unlike many of us today, isn't it? Well, think of what we've been praying for this past week. If you are anything like me, I'll bet a large portion of your prayer will be asking God to make everything fine. That our health will be fine, that our travels will be fine, our work will be fine, our children will be fine, and so on. Or we will want to tell God to tell us what to do so that everything will be fine. 
who to marry, where to live, what job to take up, what courses to take in university, and so on. In effect, we are telling God, show me the future so I don't have to take any risks. Let me know what is going to happen before I take the next step. Because we want everything to be fine for everyone. We don't want anything unpleasant to happen to anyone. We don't want to take any risk. Because as someone puts it, if risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury, our tendency is to avoid it, often at any cost. We prefer our convenient, cozy, comfortable Christian lives. We would rather cling on to the safety and the security that our world has to offer. Yet, if Jesus is someone worth losing everything for, the Christian faith is a costly faith. It is a risky faith. Why? Because this is exactly what Jesus told us. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. As Jesus said, if the kingdom of heaven is truly the treasure in the field where the man who finds it will sell everything he has to buy the field, and mind you, he does it with joy, then Jesus is telling us that we need to risk everything we are and everything that we have to follow him, to let go of the pursuits, the possessions, the pleasures, the safety, the security of this world in order to follow Jesus wherever he leads no matter the cost. Now, that would be a costly thing to do. But it would also be the logical thing to do because it would be worth doing. The missionary Jim Elliot puts it well. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is God currently asking you perhaps to take a risk for him that you might be avoiding? Perhaps he's asking you to give up that Thursday evening of networking with potential contacts for future jobs so that you may be able to come to small group to encourage someone by your presence. Perhaps he's asking you to offer the olive branch and work at reconciliation with someone at the risk of being rejected. Perhaps he's asking you not to take up a promotion which could impact your future advancement in the company so that you can spend more time with your family. Perhaps he's asking you to help someone in school who's struggling with his cost load at the expense of you having more time to do yours. What risk are you prepared to take for your faith today? He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me conclude. There should be no doubt in our minds that we live in a culture that's increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. How then should Christians engage in situations where living out our faith is being challenged and made difficult? From our story about Esther, we can learn a few things. To begin with, don't be overwhelmed, don't be afraid. The hostile forces against our faith are not as powerful as they would like us to think. Our God is infinitely more powerful. And when our faith is being challenged, strive to respond to it by working the system. That is, be prudent and apply the creative imagination that God has given us to face these challenges. 
have a mindset that's always asking, how can I better understand how the system works and respond wisely using whatever resources and influence that I have available to address the situation and to achieve what I believe is an outcome that God would approve. And finally, be prepared to take risks for the kingdom of God. And in all the other times, when our faith has not been challenged, and I hope that forms the bulk of our time, let us be asking ourselves and of others, as Mordecai did, what work has God especially for me to do? Because he has allowed me to be alive at this particular time, in this particular place, with this particular church. What work has God especially for me to do? Because he has allowed me to be alive at this particular time, in this particular place, with this particular church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.